are so excited that you joined us today. I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers with DKV Med. You're in for a great presentation today with our excellent faculty who I'll introduce in a moment. For those of you that may be joining us for the first time, welcome. And if you've participated in some of our over 150 webcasts on this important topic, uh, we do welcome you back. Uh, we've been developing COVID education since March of 2020. Over a year and a half later, we are incredibly grateful for the progress that we've all made in managing patients during this pandemic. Okay, so uh, these are the great faculty I mentioned. Um, please meet Dr. Angaroni and Dr. Vega. Uh, thank you to both of you for taking time out of your busy practices to be here today. Thanks, Faith. Happy to be here. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. These are our faculty's disclosures. Uh, this educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the planning committee members and faculty presenters. The learning objectives for this program are to assess the impact of COVID-19 on vulnerable populations, including those from racial and ethnic minorities and those with comorbidities, evaluate the best practices for treating ambulatory patients with COVID, and describe current management strategies and identify potential treatments for COVID-19 requiring hospitalization. Uh, so please note that uh, the material presented in this program is uh, as contemporary as can be. However, if you're viewing this on demand, uh, we do advise that you um, go and seek out the, the most up-to-date guidance. You can review it at NIH or IDSA. I will hand this off to Dr. Vega to kick us off. So Dr. Vega, thank you for joining. All right, well, thanks for the great introduction and for going through those questions, Faith. Over 150 presentations, wow, congratulations. I was just uh, thinking if uh, you know maybe a year from now, you're welcoming us to the 478th presentation from DKB Med on uh, COVID-19, right? This has to, we can do this. We're gonna, we're gonna slow this thing down. And that's why it's important to come together and uh, learn more about it and share what's the latest because uh, certainly everything has changed so much if you think back to where we were a year ago, um, you know, from this, from where we are right now, and ten months before that, uh, things have sure changed. Um, and one of the things that changed is that, uh, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I remember as soon as I heard about a case of COVID nineteen, I was like, "We're going into the hospital," um, and the, it, I was not comfortable managing this, you know, very scary uh, disease, which I didn't know very well. My patients were very scared. You know, we're still a very scary uh, entity. Um, COVID-19 is, is still very deadly, it takes you know, far too big a toll on our uh, public health and uh, high, with high rates of mortality. But, um, but at the same time, most of the cases are managed as, as outpatients, and that's where I work. I work in a community health center in a low-income, uh, primary Latinx community, and so these are the patients that I see every day. Um, just saw a patient yesterday with probable COVID-19, and we'll look up their result um, in a, as soon as this uh, trial or this talk is done. Um, uh, but I think it's worth remembering that most patients now are managed as outpatients. But of course, uh, having vaccination really helps your chances of being managed as an outpatient, avoiding uh, going to the emergency department, avoiding uh, being admitted and uh, avoiding mortality as well. So. Um, we're not going to be talking about vaccines too much. I know that's available in other programs, um, but we are going to be looking a lot at therapeutics. We're also going to be looking at some of the major risk factors, including poverty and race ethnicity as risk factors. But this is just a summary slide to put COVID-19 in perspective. What it does is it allows you to see uh, the usual course of uh, the virology uh, with, um, with the viral load of SARS-CoV-2 and how it usually runs. These are, again, typical, but not I've seen lots of different cases of COVID-19. I've seen it come on much more abruptly. I've seen very slow burning cases, even among high-risk patients where, uh, particularly if they're vaccinated, where they didn't have many symptoms um, at all, if not uh, asymptomatic. But it also, if you look at the box um, below uh, the red lines, there's a description of when you really want to initiate treatment. And you really want to get anything that has an antiviral action on board uh, as soon as possible. So very similar to other uh, viral infections. I think the most of influenza, if you can get treatment on board within two days, that's great. But if you can get treatment on board within 12 hours, that's even better. So I really try to promote urgency among my patients uh, that this is something we, we want to take care of right away, particularly if I'm going to initiate treatment with something like a monoclonal antibody. And those immune modulators, they may be more effective down the line because so many patients uh, infected with COVID-19 uh, develop 
uh, that sincere inflammation, that cytokine storm, and that may not be present until day six of illness, day eight of illness. So it may not be there till the second week in patients who are initially doing well. And that's why it's very important to follow patients closely until they really seem to be out of the woods and improving substantially particularly patients who are at higher risk of complications. And these are the patients I see every day. Um, most of my patients that I see in my practice where I manage a lot of chronic illnesses, and I do have an older patient population, most of them are at higher risk of complications of COVID-19. And it, I'm not gonna read this entire list. It, it actually was very mutable uh, you know, last year where it was changing almost daily. There, there categories are moving up and moving down. Um, this has been more settled over the past six months. And, uh, and I think as we get more data, it's, it's become certainly more evident that smokers, folks with chronic uh, lung disease, folks with obesity and diabetes um, have a higher risk uh, for complications of COVID-19. And just to remember that for most of these conditions, there is a synergistic effect between multiple risk factors. So a patient with one risk factor, generally speaking, is safer than a patient with four. And so it's those patients with four or five of these risk factors, which certainly we see in our practice routinely. Um, those are the folks we really want to think about initiating treatment ASAP. What's not mentioned in that list, but is really important, uh, is race ethnicity and as a risk factor for COVID-19 transmission um, and just having a, a prevalent infection and then complications of COVID-19 as well. So my patients, um, you know, they're frontline uh, workers. Uh, they need to work to put food on the table to pay rent. And so therefore there was really no break. There was no working from home. They were out there on the front lines uh, during you know, multiple surges throughout this pandemic. And many of them got infected, unfortunately, especially uh, prior to uh, vaccines being available. Um, they would come home. Um, you know, in some cases, I have two families living together in a one-bedroom apartment. There is no such thing as isolation in that kind of situation. And so the transmission rates um, in our community uh, were very high. In addition, we know that among people of color, American Indians, Alaska Natives, uh, Black and Latinx, uh, there are much higher rates of conditions such as hypertension, of diabetes, of obesity, um, of liver disease, chronic kidney disease, um, and cardiovascular disease. So therefore, uh, you know, the, these patients generally will suffer higher risk of complications. All those risk factors we just mentioned, more common uh, in these racial and ethnic groups. And so therefore, uh, very important to take that into account because that's led to much higher rates of hospitalization, unfortunately, death among uh, patients uh, of color. And I like this quote, I'll, I'll let you read it. But for those of us who work in these communities, and I'm sure many of you in our audience actually do work in these communities right now, um, that this is something that's not unusual for you. You're used to um, seeing these disparities. Um, and this is what you're probably working in your practice to prevent, is to provide health equity and reduce disparities with those uh, chronic conditions, whether it's diabetes, you know, heart disease, et cetera. Um, but COVID's really, uh, made this so much more apparent and really drawn out this um, these, these, this true health inequity uh, to you know, larger publicity throughout society. So we're all more aware of this now. And so I was interested in, you know, well, what about outcomes? And there has been some studies. So this is a study uh, that was published earlier in 2020. So this is earlier in pandemic times, uh, looking at a single center in Milwaukee. And you can see that uh, there was a high rate of uh, COVID positivity, uh, particularly among individuals who were black compared with non-black individuals. Um, hospitalization was also associated uh, significantly with black race. But in adjusted analyses, when you could adjust for you know, poverty, uh, particularly, um, there wasn't a higher risk of complications requiring ICU admission, nor a higher risk of death associated with race. And what that means to me is that these patients were, were hopefully still getting equal treatment uh, in the hospital. So they were receiving dexamethasone, they were receiving remdesivir, um, they were getting uh, the care that was up to, you know, up to date and current for an ever-changing landscape. Um, and that's heartening because we know that's not always the case. We know uh, that, that black individuals, when they present to the emergency department, they're uh, less likely to receive an appropriate analgesia for a kidney stone or a long bone fracture. They're less likely to receive a percutaneous intervention if they have an acute myocardial infarction. So we know that we in healthcare can be part of the problem here, often through unconscious bias that leads us to make decisions away from those interventions uh, for black and also Latinx patients. So that's been proven multiple times in both real world and sort of in case-based uh, in vitro studies. 
Now, the study by Ash is interesting because this is the first one that, to my knowledge, that actually showed there actually may be a difference of care and that maybe we are part of the problem when it comes to uh, contributing to higher rates of complications and mortality among black individuals. So they looked at over 44,000 Medicare uh, beneficiaries. And not surprisingly, as in other studies, black individuals compared with white individuals had a higher risk uh, for um, either mortality or discharge to hospice within 30 days. Um, but the interesting here is when they adjusted for those other factors, the socioeconomic factors where they lived, um, that actually exacerbated the disparity instead of making it better. In other studies, it made it better. And so the researchers dug in a little bit deeper, and it was a difference in the treating hospitals. Treating hospitals that had less, um, that were using less of those uh, recommended therapies uh, that uh, were in worse, air, worse areas uh, financially, uh, that, you know, that, that uh, were covering those, those uh, populations, um, tended to perform worse um, in caring for black individuals. And by leveling the playing field and providing a, um, a place where these hospitals could provide that standard of care, uh, that reduced the disparity for black individuals. So this suggests that just like many other conditions, um, you know, we have a problem when it comes to treating people of color, particularly black individuals, when it comes to COVID-19. So this is something that we should actively be taking into account when we're seeing patients as an outpatient, but also as an inpatient uh, with COVID-19. And, you know, for me, this is stuff I, I live and breathe, but I know um, I work really hard in clinic. I, I'm doing my best every day. But at the same time, I know that my interventions account for about 10% of somebody's overall well-being. Um, there are many factors, uh, those upstream factors in health, which, which result in chronic illnesses. That, that is why the individual presents to me with obesity, with a BMI of 32, an A1C of 11.6, and new onset heart failure. They're, it's their um, behavioral patterns. It's the place, uh, the place where they are and their environment. Um, and, it's, and it's poverty many times that results in these unfortunate outcomes. So, uh, so these social determinants are critically important. And that's really at the cause here when we look at disparities in COVID-19. It's not some innate immune response difference between people of color and white people. Um, it's not it's not necessarily habits or uh, some uh, predilection for uh, for COVID-19, except for the fact that many of these patients have to work and that they're uh, and they are frontline. Um, you know, it's, it's really comes down to these social determinants of health that have uh, exacerbated uh, the problem with COVID-19. And this is a, a partial list, not a complete list of social determinants of health. And I, again, I'm not going to read the whole list to you, uh, but. I think you'll be familiar and you've seen patients with barriers to housing, uh, with uh, access to green space or healthy foods, and you're trying to work with them. And that can be, so that's one thing we can do as healthcare providers, work one-on-one -on -one with individuals and families to try to reduce some of these disparities, look for solutions with them, try to use a team-based concept here um, because your social workers, um, your community health workers, those folks can be invaluable in helping out here. And then certainly on that last point with healthcare system, you know, pay attention to the guidelines that Dr. Angaroni and I are, are going to espouse here and, you know, really think about uh, promoting the best care for your patients. Get uh, these interventions on board because they do make a difference, um, particularly for people of color who maybe have uh, difficulty in accessing uh, some of these treatments. So that's the one thing I, I think we could do right away is, you know, provide equitable health care and, uh, and be very mindful of being patient-centered. And then we want to advocate across the board for all these other issues, whether it's food, education, economic stability, neighborhood and physical environment. Okay, so let's talk about some, uh, some treatments for ambulatory patients. Um, let's start with uh, these antibody-based therapies, these monoclonal antibodies, and really I think of them as antiviral agents. Um, so there's banalimumab plus etzibumab. What these agents really, their claim to fame is that they reduce complications of COVID-19 among outpatients, particularly for those outpatients at high risk of complications. Um, so if you, can, you see here, there's an 87% reduction if in a, the Danlinimab group uh, versus placebo uh, in the BLAZE-1 randomized trial. 
And so that's really where they're going to be most effective. And that's where the emergency use, use authorizations or EUAs are centered is, is initiating treatment for high risk individuals. Try to do so as soon as possible, but certainly within 10 days. And the reason we do so is because we can see reductions in hospitalization or death. So this is good for the individual patient, sure, but also really important when we think about stewardship of resources when we have uh, still in multiple areas of the United States, a real problem with capacity in terms of our hospital beds and ICUs. Uh, giving monoclonal antibodies is a way to reduce uh, the burden there. Now, uh, banlimumab plus etzimumab uh, did have uh, some resistance patterns, uh, particularly with the beta variant. Um, so it was, it was discontinued from the market, but it was reintroduced because it does seem to be effective against Delta. So it can be a, a good option. The other relatively new news just over the past for all agents so or for all ages so if you have a child with asthma um, if you have a child with sickle cell uh, disease uh, they can actually and they get COVID-19 you can re they can receive banlimumab plus etzimumab. Uh, Castrovirumab plus indevimab is another um, option um, and also proven in another well-done randomized controlled trial to be more effective um, than placebo in the risk of hospitalization or death uh, one thing to note in this trial with casperimab plus indevimab, um, symptom uh, reduction was also improved or symptoms uh, time was also improved by four days. That's something that patients really care about. One of the difficulties with these agents, honestly, is just uh, the logistics of getting them on board because we're talking about using an IV infusion, has to be given in over an hour. Patients have to be watched for an hour later for the rare but possible um, severe reactions that could occur, such as anaphylaxis, and you have to have a crash cart available and people know, who know how to use it. Add all that up, and that's and add, add in so many patients who uh, infected with COVID-19, particularly during a surge, and you've got a real difficult time, a logistical problem, particularly if you're in an under-resourced area that doesn't have an infusion center. Um, so parts of ERs have been repurposed for infusion, uh, dialysis centers have been repurposed. And so there should be a plan in place because you don't want to be scrambling for these monoclonal antibodies when the patient presents uh, with a positive uh, test for SARS-CoV-2 uh, because you really want to get the treatment on board right away. So if your center doesn't have a streamlined process, uh, definitely try to advocate and, and, and create one. I'm happy to talk about that more um, at the end of the program and, and during Q&A. But... Casarimumab plus indemimab does have an out in that it can be infused subcutaneously. So, uh, so therefore, you don't necessarily need the IV, which I think takes away uh, some of uh, the component. It could be a problem with those logistics. That said, patients still need to be monitored for an hour after the sub-Q injection uh, to make sure there's no adverse events and there has to be the equipment available in case the patient has, a, um, uh, say, an anaphylactic event, which in, in practice seems very rare. Um, was, you know, was at a rate nearing 1% in, in the EUA that I saw for banlimumab plus etzimumab. But once these monoclonal antibodies have been used much more broadly in, in uh, community-based settings, it doesn't seem like that's a very frequent event, but it has happened, and so therefore we have to be prepared. So trovimab is another option as a monoclonal antibody, also proven to uh, reduce uh, either the risk of hospitalization or death versus placebo. If you look at these trials, if you notice, they all have a very diverse uh, patient population because that's where COVID has hit the hardest, right? So we're seeing a lot of racial and ethnic diversity in these trials of monoclonal antibodies. That's not usual, but um, I think it's it's something that makes me feel reassured with the, with the patients I'm seeing every day. Um, there is uh, still some study going on uh, with sotrovimab uh, with, uh, plus uh, banlimumab, but the two big news from sotrovimab in the last uh, couple of weeks. So one is that um, it does seem to be effective as an intramuscular injection. Again, that might not approved yet that way, but it, that's another way that we could reduce the logistical burden associated with the ad, uh, administration of sotrovimab. And second, it also has uh, very preliminary data just uh, released uh, today uh, that does seem to be, you know, maintain efficacy versus the Omicron by, uh, variant in a um, in a lab-based study. So there's a lot. I'm sure everybody's got lots of questions on on Omicron. I do too, uh, but uh, we don't have a ton of answers at this time. But that's that's so far we have some reassuring uh, information on Omicron. One of which is that Sotrovimab still seems to maintain its efficacy.
And this is just a summary of the resistance pattern. So Casavirimab plus Indevimab, Sotrovimab have not been affected uh, by Delta nor the uh, beta or gamma variants, whereas you can see the Bamlimab plus Etzimab uh, were, uh, but now they are all available. And it's, this, is, this data is backed up by some real-world studies. It's nice to know randomized control trials are the gold standard. It's just nice to know that when these uh, agents have been applied in the real world, especially with a fast-changing uh, pandemic, that they still maintain efficacy. And in this uh, single, uh, single um, trial site uh, retrospective study, you can see that the uh, risk of hospitalization or ED visit uh, following administration of monoclonal antibody versus those who uh, remained untreated uh, was 82% lower. So these drugs do work in the real world. And there's another study that suggests the same as the case control study. I like this one because essentially it controlled for uh, folks it was in terms of severity of risk factors because it compared patients who were referred for monoclonal antibody and received it versus those who were referred and did not receive it. And turns out the receiving a monoclonal antibody was uh, beneficial. It was associated with a lower rate of hospitalization um, over 30 days. And these drugs are all more effective um, for folks with higher risk. So it's really the high risk patients um, who benefit, but the ones with, with five or six risk factors, those are the ones who probably will benefit the most from monoclonal antibodies, in part because they're not going to be able to you know, mount a, a great immune response if they have 12 uh, significant chronic illnesses. So in terms of who should get monoclonal antibodies, um, these are folks who, it can be now any age, um, it's 12 and up for citrovimab and casavirimab plus indevimab, but any age uh, for banlimab and sivimab. Um, but they all need to be at high risk uh, for complications of COVID-19. So that is one requirement that goes cuts across all of the three available monoclonal antibodies. They have to be high risk. Um, you want to give them within 10 days of onset. You want to shoot for much sooner than that. My goal is really to get the um, get the treatment on board at, on the day of diagnosis of COVID-19. Um, I've been successful a number of times in doing so. Motivate your uh, your logistical team to, hey, this patient's coming. Motivate your patient and their family to get them there, and, and it can work. Um, they do have to be monitored for uh, for an hour after and you know, for the rare possibility of severe reactions. In terms of criteria for monoclonal antibodies, it mirrors more or less who is, um, who's on the list for high risk of complications for COVID-19. Uh, and I would just mention that, if say, if you have somebody who doesn't quite meet criteria, you can use your clinical judgment. So a 63-year-old, and they maybe smoked up until like seven years ago, but they have a 20-pack year history, I'd probably, I would probably offer them a monoclonal antibody. So if they don't necessarily meet criteria, but they're close on two or even three of these, um, uh, these different criteria, um, you can refer them in, and the you know the uh, FDA is actually you know says that's okay. One thing that's relatively new and that we're not using uh, these agents a lot for is post-exposure prophylaxis. But if you think about you know a drug like oseltamivir, you can give it for treatment of active influenza, but you can also use it to prophylax uh, household contacts uh, to prevent them from getting influenza, particularly if they're at a high risk of complications of illness. And we can do the same thing now. Uh, with monoclonal antibodies. So this is a study looking at casperimab plus indevimab as compared with placebo's post-exposure prophylaxis. Um, and you can see that there was a substantial reduction, particularly in symptomatic cases. So yeah, that makes sense. If you're getting a monoclonal antibody, maybe you know the rare folks who do get infected don't have as severe an infection, and of course, much more likely to be hot, much less likely to be hospitalized as a result. And so the EUA was expanded at the end of July for casperimab plus indevimab to include it as a post-exposure prophylaxis for folks who are unvaccinated at high risk uh, for complications, or they're expected to have an in inadequate response to the vaccine. So these could be uh, folks with a lot of comorbidities or with chronic immunosuppression. And in terms of uh, ages, it's recommended for ages 12 and up, and they have to have um, exposure within uh, over 24 hours with somebody, but not, not, a, you know, not a lot of exposure, 15 minutes. Bandivimab plus etzimab has a similar indication now based on a clinical trial, again, uh, showing now this one was done in a skilled nursing facility. And what they showed was that the, uh, the administration of BAM was effective, not just uh, for, for staff, but for patients as well in terms of uh, prevention and transmission of symptomatic uh, COVID-19. And so therefore, uh, bandivimab plus etzimab is another option 
in terms of um, prophylaxis against uh, COVID-19 for those folks unvaccinated at high risk of complications. All right, I'm just gonna keep rolling. So let's let's talk about the new kids on the block. Not available yet, um, but but important to think about when we think about our outpatient armamentarium, which is, you know, once if these agents, and I think they will be approved, uh, once they're approved, um, boy, it's gonna be a, a different game. We're gonna have a lot of different options uh, for treating outpatients with COVID-19. So molnupiravir, um, you've, you've heard about this drug. This is the uh, five-day uh, pill oral uh, for patients with mild to moderate uh, COVID-19. Uh, when it was, uh, it was tested among uh, folks with at least one risk factor for severe disease, and this is still not published data, but the initial uh, impression was really great because you could see that the, the, the trial was stopped because they were reporting a 50% reduction in the risk of hospitalization or death associated with molnupiravir versus placebo. Outstanding, seemed safe and well-tolerated. Didn't see anything about safety signals, although I really do want to see you know, more data on that. Um, when, they, uh, when they subsequently uh, showed their complete data, um, there was a less robust uh, reduction in hospitalization or death, but it did seem to be effective against all variants, including uh, the Delta variant, which is important. And currently, uh, molnupiravir is being reviewed, and I wouldn't be surprised to hear in the next couple of weeks about um, a decision uh, for a potential EUA uh, for molnupiravir, but for right now, it's not, uh, it's not available. And then um, on the horizon, there's another product, Paxlovid, is a name, or you may want to call it 0732-1332, um, you know, you choose, um, plus ritonavir. So this one's combined, uh, you know, it's a combination antiviral uh, regimen, um, which we use for, you know, different viral infections, hepatitis C, HIV. Um, so this is, this is not that unusual. Um, but in their clinical trial uh, data, this is another five-day uh, oral therapy. Uh, you can see a, a robust reduction in the risk of hospitalization or death. Um, in the Paxlovid plus Ritonavir group versus the placebo group overall, um, and a, you know low risk of lower risk of hospitalization in particular. So this one has not uh, yet applied for the EUA, but I think that will be coming in this winter. That said, who knows? Um, you know, we, and we don't have all the data on this uh, yet either in terms of a published a publication of the randomized trial. But it is something to know about and think about and be be on the lookout for. So despite my best efforts on the outpatient side, occasionally patients do need to be hospitalized. I always feel really guilty about that, uh, but none, and that's just the paternalistic side of me. I, I know I need, I need to work on myself, um, but I feel a lot better handing uh, my patients over to highly qualified professionals like Dr. Angaroni. So Michael, do you wanna talk about hospitalized patients? Yes, so uh, you know, Chuck, thanks for kind of that really great overview of I think not just COVID and its effect on the patients that we're taking care of, but the, I think, impact that we have made and are starting to make on the outpatient side of treatment. You know, I know having, uh, you know, seen a lot of patients with COVID, treating a lot of patients with COVID and, and paying attention to the literature, the big missing component has been a lot of that outpatient care. And it's great to see this expansion, not only in the number of monoclonal antibodies we have, but now we're talking about antivirals that are direct acting that could be used in the outpatient setting, um, as well as vaccines. But patients will require hospitalization. It's a smaller number of individuals that are infected, but these are the ones we worry about the most. These are the ones that are more likely to suffer the morbid effects of SARS-CoV-2 uh, and die from uh, COVID. And so we'll talk a little bit about what has been gained, what we know about the management of hospitalized patients um, uh, with uh, COVID. Um, NIH, uh, as well as the IDSA, have recommendations. The recommendations are, for the most part, pretty similar. Um, this is a highlight of the NIH recommendations, really focusing on disease severity, just like the IDSA, uh, and then informing us what we should be doing for our patients. Patients who are hospitalized, who are not requiring supplemental uh, oxygen, they're hospitalized either for a reason other than uh, COVID or 
they're, they have a lot of risk factors for progression and out of concern they're hospitalized, but they're not on supplemental oxygen, there's really no strong recommendation about the use of remdesivir um, uh, because of the insufficient data. That's the antiviral for uh, SARS-CoV-2, and it's recommended against the use of dexamethasone or other corticosteroids in that situation. Hospitalized patients that are requiring oxygen, this is where uh, the therapies really start playing a role. Uh, remdesivir is recommended, dexamethasone plus remdesivir or dexamethasone alone. And we'll go through some of the data for these different treatments uh, in a moment. For hospitalized patients that require oxygen, but now that oxygen uh, is needed to be given through uh, devices that can give higher flows of oxygen, so high flow nasal cannula, uh, mechanical ventilation or non-invasive mechanical ventilation like CPAP, BiPAP, uh, or increasing uh, signs of systemic inflammation. This is where we definitely want to start using uh, dexamethasone or dexamethasone plus remdesivir, but start looking at agents that are really going to control that immune response. And this is where uh, the uh, JAK inhibitors like baricitinib, or the IL-6 receptor antagonists like tocilizumab actually play a role. And it's recommended in those individuals on high flow, on non-mechanical ventilation, or with signs of uh, increasing inflammation to add baricitinib or tocilizumab to the dexamethasone or dexamethasone plus remdesivir. Those individuals that are uh, in the uh, intensive care unit requiring mechanical ventilation or are on extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or ECMO, those individuals, it's recommended to place them on dexamethasone. And it's if it's within 24 hours of that ICU admission, uh, adding the tocilizumab. If you can't find tocilizumab or that's not available, you can substitute for uh, cerulimab. So what's the data for these treatments? So remdesivir was one of the first therapies that we uh, started to get data on early in the pandemic. Um, this is based off of the adaptive COVID treatment trial uh, or ACT um, that was initiated through the NIH here in the United States. Uh, ACT-1 looked at remdesivir versus placebo. Is around 540 patients on remdesivir, 520 on placebo, all within 10 days of uh, onset of symptoms. And the primary endpoint was time to recovery. And the medium time to recovery in the remdesivir was 10 days versus 15 days in the uh, placebo arm. And that was statistically significant and beneficial for the patients being cared for. There was a trend towards mortality benefit. At day 15, it was 6.7% in the remdesivir, 11.9% in the placebo. Um, but by the time we got to 29 days, there was still a numeric difference, 11.4% versus 15.2%, but that was not statistically significant but there was this benefit for patients with um, time to recovery of their symptoms. And this started to give us hope that we could start impacting the patients we were caring for. When we look at the, those who benefited, the overall uh, patient population, and specifically those that were on oxygen uh, tended to have the most benefit. Unfortunately, the individuals that were the sickest, those on mechanical ventilation, really had no uh, benefit from remdesivir, and there was no difference between remdesivir and placebo. So then the next set of data that we received was the data on uh, dexamethasone. And this came from the recovery trial, very large, ongoing, multi-armed, multifaceted uh, trial that is run out of the UK. Um, and their dexamethasone arm uh, the reports of uh, this data uh, came out kind of in the summer of uh, 2020 and really changed our approach uh, to treating patients that were hospitalized. Uh, this was a two-to-one randomization uh, of uh, kind of standard care versus uh, dexamethasone or usual care versus dexamethasone. Uh, the trial actually was halted once they had accumulated enough patients uh, to do some statistics and to see uh, the outcomes of the trial. And really the impact of this trial was overall, there was a benefit in mortality with dexamethasone 
versus usual care, about 26% mortality in usual care, 23% in the dexamethasone. That uh, benefit was seen in ventilated patients, 41% in the usual care, uh, 29% in the dexamethasone, and those uh, receiving oxygen but not ventilated, 26% versus 23%. Interestingly enough, there was no benefit and potentially harm in individuals that were not on oxygen uh, that had SARS-CoV-2 infection. So some, uh, uh, I think, hope. Uh, this was a trial that showed mortality benefit. It was dexamethasone, um, which we don't often think of for viral infections, but there was benefit. The one group that didn't benefit were those not on uh, oxygen. So that then led us to tocilizumab, so yet another kind of immune-modulating therapy. There were um, quite a few uh, trials up until the publication of the recovery data, uh, and then subsequently the remap cap data, uh, kind of in the spring of uh, this year, um, that it showed mixed uh, results many of them showing no benefit, some of them showing uh, harm in terms of increased uh, um, other infections developing in individuals who were given uh, these IL-6 receptor antagonists. Um, there were a few trials that started to hint at there might be a benefit, but they were very small. And so we all wanted to see larger studies, more data. And so therefore came uh, the uh, reporting of the recovery trial data from their inflammatory arm. So again, large multifaceted trial. Uh, the recovery uh, data that looked at uh, tocilizumab was their inflammatory arm. So this took individuals that had increasing signs of inflammation and worsening respiratory status and randomized them to continued usual care or receipt of uh, tocilizumab. Um, interestingly, uh, the time that this was done, about 80% uh, of individuals were on some sort of steroid. Uh, about 41% required non-invasive uh, ventilation. 45% had no respiratory support. Um, uh, and they enrolled about nine uh, to 10 days after symptom onset. Those inflammatory markers or worsening respiratory status were uh, worsening uh, oxygen saturation to below 92% or requiring oxygen and escalating amounts of oxygen and a C-reactive protein that was uh, greater than or equal to 75. So when this data was analyzed, again, we see a benefit in 28-day mortality, 35% for the usual care, 31% for the tocilizumab. Uh, there was a benefit in that there was a, a reduction in progression to invasive uh, ventilation or death, 42% in the usual care, 35% in the tocilizumab. And there was an uh, increase in uh, discharge by 28 days. 57% in the tocilizumab versus 50% in the usual care. Again, all of these being uh, statistically significant. And again, another agent kind of in our armamentarium for uh, management of uh, COVID, especially more severe COVID. So now we're talking patients that are on non-mechanical ventilation, patients that are having, having worsening inflammation and uh, respiratory status. Um, recently, there was published uh, in JAMA uh, uh, kind of a meta-analysis of uh, the various studies that have looked at uh, tocilizumab and cerulimab uh, and then grouping it together as these anti-IL-6 uh, therapies. Again, we see a benefit uh, to the use of uh, anti-IL-6 therapy and tocilizumab in individuals um, when it comes to 28-day mortality. Uh, especially when combined uh, with corticosteroid use. Uh, we see a benefit of IL-6 inhibitors in preventing the progression to non-invasive mechanical ventilation, ECMO or death at day 28 um, for um, all individuals uh, receiving IL-6 or any IL-6 as well as tocilizumab, especially when combined with corticosteroids. Um, I think an important thing to remember in this meta-analysis, looking at all these trials, there's really been no difference um, between secondary infections. That 
myself as an infectious disease specialist, that's one of the things that I've been really worried about, are, are giving agents like tocilizumab, cerulimab, bercitinib, and others, in, in, in addition to the steroids that are being used, uh, potentially going to increase secondary infections, mold infections, uh, other bacterial infections. And based on this meta-analysis, we're not really seeing that with the IL-6 inhibitors, which I think is a good sign. So it means that we can give these agents to our patients um, and uh, um, um, help them recover and maybe not worry as much about those secondary infections. Baricitinib, as I mentioned, uh, is also recommended for those individuals that are admitted to the ICU and within 24 hours of admission to the ICU. Uh, Act 2 of the Adaptive COVID Treatment Trial evaluated baricitinib um, in combination with remdesivir versus remdesivir plus placebo, and there was improved time to recovery uh, when given with remdesivir. Um, in those individuals who are on uh, supplemental oxygen but not mechanical ventilation. There was not a lot of uh, corticosteroids used in this trial, so it was hard uh, to know how that would have played effect. Uh, Cove Barrier, so this is the more recent trial of about 1,500 patients. This looked at uh, standard uh, treatment, which was remdesivir or corticosteroids, and corticosteroids in an overwhelming majority of patients. Um, and looking at individuals that were given baricitinib <coughs> with this uh, usual care. The primary endpoint being death or progression to high flow oxygen, non-invasive ventilation, mechanical ventilation, or ECMO. Um, there was no significant difference. So about 30% in the usual care, 28% in the baricitinib. Where the benefit was seen uh, was the secondary outcome, which was all-cause mortality. There was about a 38% reduction in that all-cause mortality. Again, another agent showing that if we control some of that inflammation, we can control and potentially reduce mortality for uh, our patients. Um, so all these treatments um, are great. I think we've seen a lot of advances in these therapies. They've really benefited our patients. Um, uh, it's nice to have kind of that stepwise approach as someone starts to get sicker and they're not responding to that first stage of therapy, you can add something uh, else. So uh, Dr. Vega talked about monoclonal antibodies uh, and how he views and I view monoclonal antibodies as being an antiviral as well. So what about using them in hospitalized patients that are hospitalized specifically for uh, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID reasons? Um, and there is data for that. So one of the arms in the recovery is looking at using monoclonal antibodies, specifically casiovirumab and divimab, in hospitalized patients. Um, this was you know, close to 10,000 patients, uh, open label, standard of care or usual care versus um, uh, usual care with a single dose of the casiviramab and divimab. Uh, again, a lot of patients on corticosteroids, median time to symptom onset was uh, nine days. So within that 10 day window that we look at the use of these monoclonals. Um, when looking at the entire population of patients, there was really no benefit. So this was all comers. Um, the difference in outcome was 21 versus 20%. When looking specifically at the seronegative group, the 28-day mortality was 24 versus 30%, which was a significant difference. And the progression to invasive ventilation or death was 30 versus uh, 37%. Um, again, which was significant. So um, um, I think that shows that there's benefit to these antibodies. The caveat being those individuals that are seronegative, that might be the rate limiting uh, step in giving these in clinical practice. They are not uh, EUA authorized or approved for this. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see um, uh, how uh, the um, uh, FDA handles its, this, and then what further data starts to tell us about the use of these monoclonals uh, in the inpatient setting. So with that, just to summarize what we discussed, um, so Dr. Vega talked about kind of the uh, clinical course and uh, outpatient management of COVID. Um, I think 
we have to remember being black, African Indian, uh, American Indian, Alaska Native, and Latinx is associated with a higher risk of COVID-19 infection, hospitalization, hospitalization, and death. This is really due to the social determinants of health, unequal health risk as a result of these different conditions uh, and the different conditions where people live, work, learn, gather, uh, and the age of uh, patients, and even where they're treated in the hospital in which they're uh, cared for. Monoclonal antibodies are available for post-exposure prophylaxis and treatment of outpatients uh, for uh, people at high risk of severe disease or hospitalization. And uh, um, uh, they're now approved, at least the uh, bamlanivet bamlanivimab, edisivimab, castivirimab, and divimab uh, for all ages. Uh, molnupiravir is an oral antiviral that is currently under review by the FDA and the first oral antiviral for uh, COVID uh, to be looked at by the FDA. And fortunately, we do have the Pfizer uh, product uh, that will hopefully be uh, coming up next. Uh, the NIH guidelines for hospitalized patients include remdesivir, which is an antiviral and immune suppressants. Recommendations vary by level of disease, severity, and other factors. Uh, remdesivir is FDA approved for all hospitalized patients, but recommend, uh, recommendations for use vary by organization and center. And patients on oxygen, but not requiring mechanical ventilation or ECMO, benefited the most uh, from remdesivir, according to the ACT-1 trial. Duration of illness was reduced by a medium of five, median of five days. And antiviral and antibody-based therapies appear to work best if administered as early as possible uh, after uh, symptom onset and diagnosis of infection. We are going to move now into the Q&A. As a reminder to submit a question, please do click that Q&A button on the left of your console. We will try to get to it as many as time allows. Um, that being said, if yours does not get answered, please keep your eyes peeled for our upcoming webinars and we just might answer it there. So here's our first question. Um, what do we know about how dangerous Omicron is in terms of mortality or ICU admission rate? Um, I think this is the question that everyone is asking. Um, you know, Chuck, I'm sure you're getting asked this by patients, colleagues. I know I am uh, getting asked this by everyone. I get text, emails, you know, phone calls. Um, I think the, the true answer is we don't know. Um, this is very early on um, in identifying this as a specific variant. So probably, you know, it's a month in or so um, if we kind of track backwards. Some of the early reports that we're hearing from South Africa is that um, disease may be milder. Um, but I don't know if I would, you know, hang my hat on that. Um, uh, same thing with, uh, you know, hearing the reports about uh, this uh, variant being more likely uh, to infect or have a higher rate of infecting those who've already had infections. I think we need to see how things pan out as the dust settles. Early information is that it's a milder illness um, um, and that the monoclonal, so as uh, um, uh, Chuck alluded to uh, with the sotorvimab, at least in vitro, um, show that still they still have activity, um, which I think is really promising. And I think that's if we start thinking about Delta and some of the other variants, we were worried about all these different breakthroughs, but we've seen that our therapies have withheld. Are they as good as the initial? Uh, no, but they've withheld. Um, Omicron is an interesting virus. So um, uh, we were talking about this uh, earlier today um, on how it has multiple mutations within the spike and some of the other genes, but it also has some of the uh, genetic material of the human coronaviruses. So, you know, now kind of the common cold human coronaviruses. And so potentially, is that going to lessen some of uh, its symptomatology? Time will tell. I, I, I think uh, over the next, you know, month or so, I think we'll really start to see uh, the impact of this variant. I'll just add that um, that's that's a great response, and you know, there's so much we don't know. But but one thing that I I've noted and I've been waiting for and looking for is is there that singular variant that's truly more virulent than other variants? And I don't think we've seen strong data, even with Delta, 
that it actually produced independently a more severe infection. Not talking about transmissibility because that's that's a different subject, and yet Delta was you know more transmissible. But thank goodness because the you know the combination of transmissibility and virulence would really put us back uh, in terms of how we're you know affected by the pandemic. So uh, so let's. Uh, keep our fingers crossed, keep those vaccines flowing. And uh, and for now, you, you're absolutely right. Good point, Michael. You know, keep those monoclonal antibodies going for those high-risk patients. Yeah, and I think that's a great point, uh, Chuck, the, the idea that we haven't seen any of these variants be more virulent, more infectious, yes, more virulent, no. So a little bit of hope. But, Perfect. It's encouraging. Thank you, you two. Um, our next question here, uh, is 10 days of dexamethasone still the standard or can dexamethasone be used for more than 10 days? So based on the data that we have, 10 days is kind of the, the upper end of it. So you can give it for up to 10 days. You can give it for five, you can give it for six. Can you give it for more? I think it's an individualized approach. The, the what's going on with the patient do they need steroids for other reasons? Are they adrenally insufficient in some way? And you want to keep them on the dexamethasone and maybe taper them a little bit. Once you start going beyond 10 days, those are the things I would start to worry about. The need for a taper, the need for some of the monitoring for some of the adverse effects. So I would try to stick with 10 days as a maximum unless there's some other reason that you need to give it for long. That, that was a really interesting question. And Michael, what's the average, uh, the approximate average, because of course every patient is different, but the approximate average duration of dexamethasone treatment, because that's not what I'm seeing in post-hospital follow-up. I'm not seeing 10 days. I'm seeing four days, five days. I agree with that. I would say, again, anecdotally from what I've seen and from what we experience here at our hospital, I would say it's at four to six days um, uh, that we've been giving it. We have not been giving much up to the 10 days. Okay, um, and this will be our final question today. Again, if you did um, have more questions, then uh, please keep your eyes peeled. We might just answer them in upcoming webinars. Um, but this next question here, um, and Dr. Vega, I'll toss this one to you. Can antibody treatments be used on people who have been fully vaccinated? Yes, yeah, unfortunately we are seeing more breakthrough infections and those infections happen more in our older folks with more immune compromise. So therefore, um, yeah, monoclonal antibodies can absolutely and should uh, be delivered to those patients. Um, for your unvaccinated folks, you have to wait 90 days is the recommended period before vaccinating after a monoclonal antibody treatment. But, uh, but when they've already been vaccinated, yeah, definitely give monoclonal antibodies that patient's at high risk. Wonderful. Well, thank you again to both of you and for our audience. If you would like to claim credit, please click that claim credit button. It will appear when the webcast ends and be on the lookout for our 30 day survey. You'll receive that in your email. And as always, your responses will help us develop further education on this and similar topics. Uh, and to our podcast listeners, please leave a rating and review on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds and helps us to uh, kind of grow our channel and reach more people. Um, and to those who watch us on YouTube, uh, please like and subscribe. Um, it's an easy way to show your support. So thank you, uh, Dr. Vega and Dr. Angaroni. We'll see you again soon. Thank you. Stay well, everyone. Thank you. Take care.